Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. Well, this week, it's time for The Rendezvous, our monthly installment where the Mitchell team digs into stories you've seen in the headlines, and we are off to a new year, and it's really hard to believe. So we've gathered members of the team to discuss topics we should be tracking in 2024, and the goal is to provide some insights and points to consider as the year unfolds. Obviously, we'll see some wild cards, but there's some macro trends that can predict a high degree of certainty. So this is an ambitious undertaking. So we have a big crew with us today to represent various lanes of the enterprise. So to kick this off, I'd like to introduce Mike Dom. As you know, he covers air power, China, and the broader strategy elements in his portfolio at Mitchell. So Mike, welcome. Happy New Year, Slick. Happy New Year, my friend. And we also have our space expert, Charles Galbraith, here as well. Thanks, Slick. Uh, happy New Year to everyone. Great to be back. All right. And we have Todd Sledge Harmer with us today. Great to be back and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And also Anthony Laser Lazarski. Also happy to be back and Happy New Year to everybody. Awesome. And for those that might be new to the Rendezvous, Sledge and Laser are our Washington experts who are part of the Rendezvous crew. And we also have Heather Penny, our air power and futures expert. Slick, happy to be back and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Great to hear your voice. All right. And last but certainly not least, we have Doug Berkey, Mitchell's Executive Director. Doug, welcome. Hey, great to be back and awesome to start the new year with you. Awesome. Well, we're, let's just dive right into this. And, and Laser and Sledge, what are the top issues that were still in play on the Hill defense-wise as we ended 2023 that will continue immediately into 2024? I mean, are we still in a continuing resolution? Ukraine funding hasn't been settled. There's a lot more. You might give us an update. Sure. I'll start off. In short, Congress has to finish up all its FY24 bills over the next three to five weeks, uh, while simultaneously beginning the FY25 congressional process. And then we can add an emergency supplemental appropriations bill in an election year to make 2024 uh, really exciting to move forward on. If we start with the emergency supplemental, that's some, I don't want to say the simplest, but in the end, I expect it's going to include funding for Israel, Ukraine, and Pacific, specifically Taiwan, and border security, along with some congressional direction or oversight of that funding. And right now, members of Congress have been trying to come into an agreement uh, since November of last year on this supplemental. Issues that remain open are Ukraine funding, uh, but I expect that will be included. There'll be some sort of restriction or oversight uh, required, and then border security funding. And in there, there's going to be some policy changes, some reforms to U.S. policy regarding migrant at the border or asylum or long-term detention rules. And that, again, is the hang-up, and that's what's still trying to be worked out. While there's overall support in Congress and in the American people, Congress has not been able to reach a bipartisan bicameral agreement in order to pass that bill. And even though they tried to work it over the recess, no agreement has been reached. So they're they're going to try to get it done when they come back. I mean, they're working it this week on staff and members are still working it. But uh, I'm not really sure when that will ultimately come together, even though the Senate wants to try to get it done 
by the end of January. Uh, the problem is they're running into our next big issue, which is trying to finish up the 12 FY24 appropriations bills that are already four months late. And Slick, as you mentioned, the government's on a continuing resolution, and it's a laddered resolution, uh, which it just means that four bills need to get done by the 19th, and then the remaining eight need to get done by February, but they ultimately all get worked together to try to move forward. Now, over the holidays, Congress tried to come to an agreement on a top line, on the spending numbers, you know, okay, how do we make up all these bills? What does defense uh, get funded at? And it hasn't happened yet. And, and they, it should have happened because they need to start putting these bills together if they're going to meet the two deadlines that we just uh, uh, discussed. And the talks really have stalled on disagreement over side deals that happen. We had the debt limit ceiling agreement, which set limits for defense and non-defense funding. And what happened for non-defense, it was $704 billion, which was a 9% cut, and defense was 886 which is about a 3% increase. However, there was a side deal that could add up to $69 billion to non-defense you know, domestic spending. And Speaker Johnson was not a participant in the side deal and doesn't feel he's bound by it. And the House Freedom Caucus is demanding that no additional funding above the debt limit deal be included. So if they can't come to an agreement by the 19th for the first four bills or the second, then we could see either a partial or a full government shutdown. And Speaker Johnson also said he doesn't want to push out another short-term continuing resolution, preferring to move us to a full year-long continuing resolution for all these bills. And that's something defense has never been on. We've always had our appropriations bills. And then we've talked about in the past that if the bills aren't passed, there's this one percent cut or sequestration that would uh, come into effect if the bills are enacted and it really comes into effect uh, after 30 April. But the good news uh, on that is ONB has told the federal agencies don't take any action on that 1% starting 1 January because they're optimistic, uh, and so am I, that Congress is trying to get this thing done. Lastly, there's a couple of other things that Congress has to do. There are several authorities that it needs to extend. One is DHS cyber authorities that expire on the 2nd of February. FAA authorities uh, expire on 8 March. And then the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA, expires on the 19th of April. So every delay on all of this impacts the work that we need to be doing for FY25. Yeah, and if I could, I'd, I'd just like to add a couple of caveats there. First, the National Defense Authorization Act was, was signed into law on the 22nd of December. So DOD has a lot of the policy provisions in force now that they need for the upcoming fiscal year. So that's that's off the table. Um, one, I, one thing I'll take exception to there that Laser said, I don't think that Speaker Johnson wants a full-year CR. Before he became the Speaker, he was a member on the House Armed Services Committee. He understands the impact that the full-year CR and the 1% sequestration would have. So I think he's motivated to get some type, probably end up being a couple of minibus deals, but to get a full-year appropriation for at least the Department of Defense. But the real wild card is, and Laser mentioned this, is border security. The, the Republicans will hold, in the House will hold strong, and I think in the Senate as well, unless there is some type of an agreement that secures the southern border. In fact, on the 3rd of January, Speaker Johnson is supposed to take a very large delegation of about 70 members down to the southern border. So you'll start seeing a lot of the media fallout from that. And I think that'll generate interest in coming to some type of an agreement. 
But at the end of the day, it's going to be a chocolate mess. If I could be bold enough to make a, uh, a prediction, I think you're going to see a partial government shutdown on the 20th of January. We won't, there's only nine legislative days remaining when Congress gets back before the 19th of January uh, deadline. Without the top line numbers now, I don't see even if the staff are working 24-7 how they get it done. So I think that will be the Department of Agriculture, Department of Energy, Department of Veterans Affairs, and Transportation. There'll be probably some set-asides or, or essential personnel designations for air traffic controllers and the whatnot, but I, I think that's what will happen. And then the intervening time, and again, there's only currently only scheduled three legislative days between the 19th of January and the 2nd of February, so they've got a lot to do. But I think they'll come to some type of an agreement and maybe two or three minibus packages that get the full appropriations for the rest of the fiscal year. Man, this is why I love having both of you on this podcast, because your insights are just really incredible. And Sledge, that'll give us something to talk about on the next rendezvous to see if your prediction is correct. All right, looking beyond the near-term issues, uh, what are the big picture issues that you think we'll see on the Hill as the year evolves? Uh, it'll be an election year. Both the Air Force and the Space Force are pursuing sweeping modernization, and there's the reorganization Secretary Kendall is pursuing. So what are your thoughts on these issues, and what else are we missing? Yeah, before we jump into some of the specific issues there that you mentioned, Slick, let's just kind of put some context in what we can expect in the upcoming uh, legislative year. First of all, it is an election year. We have divided government, so set your expectations very low. I mean, we just we have to accept that as a fact. This being the worst form of government, but better than all the others. If we assume that there will be appropriations for the government starting on the 2nd of February, I think that then we can start planning for what the FY25 cycle is going to look like. But if passed as prologue, it takes about 10 weeks from the time an appropriations bill is passed until the administration can tweak their upcoming fiscal year request. So you're looking at the, the FY25 president's budget request going over to Congress somewhere around the 15th of April. The top line for defense is going to be $895 billion. That's a 1% increase that was set in the Fiscal Responsibility Act. Doesn't account for inflation, so it's in effect a cut to defense spending. That also means that the timeline is going to be compressed. And Congress is really going to have to get through the posture season in short order to make sure that they get their markups complete. I think there's going to be some distractions on Capitol Hill. And, and I jokingly refer to these as the three eyes. There are the indictments against the former president as we lead into the uh, presidential election. There's the impeachment inquiry. And then there's immigration. So it's really all going to be about border security. But I think there was a, a quote in the, the paper this morning from Tom Cole on the House Appropriations Committee that says, yeah, it is, we do have divided government, but the one thing that we will get done are the appropriations bills. I think that's probably true for the House. I don't think that's going to happen in the Senate. Speaker Johnson has threatened to cancel the August recess for the House to make sure they get everything done. So that may be, you know, that, that may happen. Uh, but I think we're going to find ourselves in September looking at a CR that gets us through the uh, election, which is on the 5th of uh, November. And, and that's where we're going to be on appropriations. Now, back to your specific questions, I think regarding any of the Space Force, and I'll defer to uh, Charles and the Space Force experts there, I think there's still a bit of a honeymoon uh, period happening with Capitol Hill and the Space Force, but they need to move out on their modernization. So I think they'll get support there. I'm going to be watching with interest how the uh, headquarters decisions for Spacecom 
affects the uh, love affair between Congress and the Space Force, particularly between the Alabama and the Colorado delegations on that. For the larger, uh, I guess, the, the larger transformation or reorganization that Secretary Kendall has, I think there's a lot of skepticism on Capitol Hill as to how that's going to play out, especially when you come out and you say you want to get rid of the MAGCOMs, you're organized, train and equip your Title X requirement to make yourself more a warfighting combatant command focused organization. Usually what that means is Congress is going to study, they're not going to approve, and we'll have to revisit this in FY26. Just continuing on, you may be right, Sledge, on April. I'll I'll say a little more optimistic. It could be March. And the reason why I say that is the debt ceiling agreement not only set the FY24 top line, but also set the FY25. They know what the top line is. They're watching what's happening. It is a president's budget request, so he's going to send over what he wants. The key for Congress is we've got to move it. They've got to move as quick as possible. And what you're going to see, just like we've seen in previous years, they're going to start with the meetings and hearings. They'll have the co come up first, and then they're going to have to wait to get the services and OSD over uh, for the budget hearings after the budget comes out, because obviously they can't talk about the budget until it's been released to Congress. And it is supposed to come over on the first Monday of February, which both Sledge and I agree is not going to happen. Um, The other thing is interesting is if you look at the FY25 defense budget, and this goes into what your question is on the organization or what are we going to see in the future? The FY25 would result in about a one point a 1% increase over 24. So it's 895. Well, that's at least a 1.5% decrease or cut in our budget based on a 2.5% inflation. And you know, I, I don't think people if it's going to be 2.5. And then when you look at what defense inflation is and anticipated increases in fuel and operating costs, we're looking at a four or five. And we talked about this before, Slick. It could be a significant another significant decrease, a cut on our overall expenditures for defense. And then going down to General Deptulas and on the call today, you know, oldest and smallest in the history, operating in the most challenging threat environment. I think those of us on this podcast have seen you got a growth of potential nuclear nations, technology growth to include AI that's impacting national security across the spectrum, the growth in space operations that we're seeing. And then we have a peer competitor out there. So taking a look at how the Air Force is organized to fight current and future conflicts is great. And we need to constantly look at that and make sure that we increase our capabilities, our lethality, and our effectiveness. However, there have been some reorganizations that we've seen that look like more like rearranging deck chairs or focus on finding ways to cut people and assets based on a budget-driven uh, budget deal uh, versus trying to improve warfighting capabilities. You know, our Air Force and Space Forces need to modernize and need to grow to have the force structure and capability to meet the threats of today and tomorrow. However, we all know we're living in a a budget-constrained environment, and so then we have to say, well, what can we afford to keep the peace and protect national security instead of looking at, hey, what is needed, and then funding those capabilities. Yeah, you know, I wanted to just hop in over the break. I had a great opportunity to check in with some of my mentees that are fifth gen drivers now. And, you know, some of the stories that I'm hearing from the field is just basically like, I just looked at them, I apologize. I'm like, I'm sorry, you know, I I had a great time when I was in a superpowers Air Force. And the stories that you're telling me now seems like we really need to take a good close look at what's going on to make sure that they have all the tools and the the training availability that they need. So uh, anybody else want to hop in on this? Yeah, I'll just add, 
you know, it's time to get really serious, especially if you look at what Ledger and Sledger are saying, that, that we're really going to see what amounts to real cuts coming at us because we're not doing the inflation adjustments. It's time to get serious about hard choices. There are certain portions of the defense budget that are higher risk and others that are lower risk. You know, it came out on a news story this year that the Army will be the smallest since World War II. That's unfortunate, but on the other hand, you can regenerate 18-year-olds with rifles pretty darn fast. We proved that over the last 20 years, year after year. You can take risk there. You cannot take risk recapitalizing the triad, building new submarines, things like the B-21, the F-35, NGAT. Those are very, very, very hard programs, and they lock you into a set of policy options from a building capacity perspective for decades. Those are the areas where you cannot take risk. You cannot take risk in those high-end personnel like you were talking about, like like the fifth-gen fighter pilots and guys like that, where that is tremendously high-end skill set. It's very perishable, and we got to steward that stuff carefully. And so we need to get serious about where we spend money. And if you're spending money at $50 million a shot, on an ultra long range hypersonic missile, which is nearly an F-35 per shot, you know, maybe there's a better way of doing business. Or like I said, we could take some risk on some end strength things. You know, I wish we could have more for everybody, but we can't. So we need to look, where do you get the biggest bang for the buck? And how do you minimize risk over the long term where it really counts? And then I'd also just say this Ukraine thing, I would emphasize we have got to really keep our eye on the ball with that. Sledge has always talked about we need a strategy there about how we win. I agree with that completely. And and the administration needs to articulate that because right now it is devolving into a popular notion of an unwinnable morass. It is winnable. It is possible to engage with it, but there's got to be a more effective strategy on it. There have to be resources. I would argue we can draw a line directly from how we withdrew from Afghanistan to Putin deciding that he was going to invade Ukraine, that the great powers weren't going to oppose him and, and we didn't have the will. If we don't back Ukraine and allow them to get to a semblance of victory, I guarantee you the next dotted line that you can draw is going to be very, very bad because we're giving a green light to adversaries around the world. The Western world doesn't have staying power. Just stick with it and you, you'll get what you want. Do we really want to see that playing out in the Pacific? That's a fight we cannot afford to take on right now. Deterrence is everything. We got to stick with this. And I'm going to jump in here slick as well, you know, to take back to what some of Doug's earlier comments were. You know, we have to remember what Don Rumsfeld said, right? You go to war with uh, the army you have, not the army you wished you had. And that's when he says army, it really means military forces. We go to war with the military forces that we have, not the ones that we wish we had. So one of the things I'll be looking for when we see the FY25 budget come out is what is the balance? What's the ratio between research and development and procurement? So this gets back to hedging risk today so that you can build the future for tomorrow. And what we saw last year where research and development was actually higher than big blue Air Force procurement dollars, that to me is a very worrying signal that we're continuing to hollow out our force. We are cannibalizing the forces that we have today. And this gets back to, you know, the boys and girls that are they're out there willing to fight our wars for us. We are not giving them the capabilities they need today in order to be able to go out and do the job that we've asked them to do and, and do that successfully and come home safely. So, you know, I'm, I'm big into advanced technologies, what the future holds, but I'm not willing to sacrifice today for what is essentially a PowerPoint or still, you know, TRL one or two 
great idea, but if I can't feel that till the 2030s, early 2040s, I need to make sure that I'm husbanding my forces for today. And so I think uh, the balance between procurement and R&D is going to be really important. And I would rather see more money in procurement today so that we're not um, sacrificing that for the future. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. What's, what scares me there as well, Heather, is that we'll just R&D ourselves to the point where if it's not the 110% perfect solution, then we'll just walk away from it and then say, we need to explore some more. I know Mike uh, has some insights as well, so I want to bring him into the conversation here. So when it comes to Congress, probably doesn't come as a surprise to anybody. What I'm looking for is you know, more from the House Select Committee on China. So this bipartisan committee was set up about a year ago, this time last year, in hopes of better addressing national security threats from China. And they've come up with a bunch of recommendations. They are not empowered to create legislation, as I understand it, but they've had a bunch of hearings and they're, they're making their recommendations. But recently, the committee chairman, Mike Gallagher, has said he is shooting for, quote, a big China bill in 2024. So we're going to have to see how that plays out. But Right before the holiday break on December 18th, Representative Gallagher sent a letter to Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks with his ideas about how to counter the evolving military threat from China. So let me just read a few sentences from Gallagher's letter. And and I'm just picking a few sentences here. We can put the link to the letter on our website. So Congressman Gallagher writes, Recent war games simulating a conflict with China over Taiwan show the United States would run out of long-range, precision-guided munitions in less than one week. Today's challenges must force us to adapt and think outside the box. If the cost and production times are limiting our supplies of those long-range, precision-guided missiles, we must look at cheaper alternatives that can be produced quickly which can complement the most expensive missiles, those missiles Doug was talking about. He goes on, two innovative ideas, the MacGyver harpoons and powered JDAMs, joint direct attack munitions. These may offer potential solutions to our problems and help strengthen the arsenal of deterrence at this urgent moment. And he goes on, but without getting into all the details, I think the MacGyver harpoon is like the Swiss Army knife of anti-ship missiles that can be like a multi-mission weapon. And then powered bait JDAMs are about taking, you know, our huge supply of 500-pound bombs and making them into inexpensive cruise missiles. And, and those are super interesting ideas. And, and right here on this podcast, you know, we've talked a lot about the need for DOD and the Air Force to innovate at speed. And, and we should absolutely pursue those types of initiatives. But, you know, at some point, while I appreciate the congressman's specific ideas about this specific problem, Congress has got to realize that just like everybody was talking about, you know, quick fix innovations are not going to win in a strategic competition with China. Yes, we need innovation, but we're facing systemic shortfalls in terms of force structure, training, readiness, logistics, maintenance, all the things we've been talking about. And we have to wake up to the idea that we need strategic solutions to strategic problems. Awesome. Okay, Charles, uh, what should we be thinking about when it comes to space power in the new year? Yeah, thanks, Slick. You know, we just came off of the fourth anniversary of the establishment of the Space Force. So we shouldn't lose sight of just how new it is as a service and how much growth it still needs to undergo. But there are a few challenges that are facing the Space Force as it tries to grow. Of course, the budget is one of the major issues facing the Space Force. 
the threat of a CR and the impacts that it would have on the potential growth of new programs and efforts that the Space Force absolutely has to do in order to get after the threats is an ever-present concern. But even beyond that, there's indications that the budgets in the future years will begin to taper off. The growth that we have seen in the, in the past few years in terms of double-digit growth for the, the budget looks like that's, that's done. But basically, the honeymoon period of Space Force growth from a budget perspective might be over. But what we need to make sure everybody understands is there's still a lot of growth that has to occur to get after the missions that are required for the Space Force in order to secure the capabilities and aspects and services that we all depend on. But what this is going to require is that the Space Force do a really good job of articulating exactly what it needs, not just what fits into the overall budget that's coming forward, but what does it need to do its mission? And it has to be very clear and direct about this in terms of budgets, as well as manpower. Now, last year, the Secretary of the Air Force put out the consolidated strategy for the Space Force and indicated that about 13,500 personnel was the right size. I think if anybody takes a good hard look at the manning numbers for the missions that the Space Force does today and the Space Force missions that it's going to need to do in the future, would suggest that there's going to need to be increased manning. So looking at how the Space Force utilizes the manpower resources that it has, what additional resources it might need for the future is going to be another issue that's going to evolve over time. Now, one of the ways the Space Force is trying to get after this is through integration mission, integrated mission deltas. We saw the first two of these come out at the end of last year, and I expect to see that continue to other mission areas beyond position navigation and timing and electronic warfare that we saw earlier. So that concept is going to expand across more of the Space Force and, and may look at achieving some manpower efficiencies, but really the ultimate goal here is about delivering effective capabilities. So in addition to looking at the, the organizational construct and how that might impact manpower, I expect that the Space Force is really going to be in this phase of, of, of growth and sort of internal turmoil, if you will. When you look at the traditional stages of a founding organization, there's the forming, storming, norming, performing. I think we're really going to get into some storming in 2024. And this isn't going to be you know, particularly contentious or you know, hostile, but it's going to be, let's take a good hard look at some of the concepts and strategies and pre-existing uh, assumptions that we've made, and let's reevaluate those and make the necessary adjustments. One of the key areas I think that this will happen in is the theory of competitive endurance that rolled out last year. When, when, it, when General Saltzman rolled it out, he said, this is just a theory and I want to have debate about it. I expect there to be a lot more debate and, and deep diving into some of the concepts of uh, the theory of competitive endurance in 2024. And that may in fact have additional repercussions to mission areas, organizational structure, as well as the requirements for resources and personnel. So as it goes through this sort of storming phase to figure out exactly what it needs to be to get after the mission set, I think there's going to be a little bit of uh, turmoil there, but that'll all settle out and, and we'll be moving forward. But everybody should you know, take to heart that the existing capabilities and services that we all rely on will still be there day in and day out because the Space Force is there to conduct its mission, even though it's going through these growing phases.
So Mike, what are issues that we should be tracking, you know, when it comes to China? Are there major events on their calendar that'll drive security developments? And, you know, what about neighbors like Taiwan? You know, they're holding an election in January, I think. Yeah, Saturday, January 13th. Those are the, the Taiwan national elections for its legislature and for the president. So at last check, you know, this is not a podcast about Taiwan politics, but, you know, William Lai was leading in the polls. Lai represents the Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, and that's the party that's in control of Taiwan at the moment. And at the new year, I think he had about a five-point lead over his, his KMT rival. So the security implications here center around the fact that the DPP is more pro-U.S. and independence-minded, and the KMT would rather see more dialogue and compromise with Beijing to reduce tensions across the Taiwan Strait. So clearly, Beijing wants the KMT to win, but the DPP is probably going to take it. So I, I don't know that we'll see much in terms of increased military activity in the run-up to the elections, uh, but we might see a demonstration of Chinese military power after the elections, but before Chinese New Year, which comes in the middle of February. You know, Beijing wants to send a signal to the new Taiwan administration, especially if that Taiwan administration is DPP, that any ideas they might have about independence or closer military relations with the U.S. will not be tolerated. In other news, China has a new defense minister, Admiral Dong Jun. He's the first Navy officer to occupy the post of defense minister. And you'll recall in one of our recent episodes, I explained that the previous defense minister, Li Shangfu, had disappeared from public view months ago and was rumored to be under investigation for corruption. Minister Li was officially removed from office in late October. And, and our, our listeners should understand the defense minister in China is not like the U.S. Secretary of Defense. The Chinese defense minister doesn't actually command any forces, any troops. He's got a small staff. So Admiral Dong is, is like the public face of the Chinese military. He's largely responsible for foreign military engagement, you know, going to going to conferences and forums, things like that. So in that regard, this new Chinese defense minister will have opportunities to shape U.S.-China relations. But I'd point out that Admiral Dong has also had a lot of experience dealing with Russia. He hosted the commander of the Russian Navy on a visit to China just a few months ago where they were talking about work, you know, working together at shipyards and on technology transfers. Um, so in 2024, I think we'll, we'll need to pay close attention to how U.S., how China and Russia relations are developing and, and whether we start to see more technology transfer between those two nations. Awesome. Now, what about Chinese uh, defense modernization from hardware and related systems perspective? Are there things we should be, we should be tracking this year? Yeah, so China and defense modernization. This is the part where I invoke Yogi Berra, who once said, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. I, you know, I have every expectation we're going to continue to see announcements, whether leaked or intentionally broadcast, about new Chinese capabilities or new Chinese advancements in technology in, in 2024. Folks should keep in mind that some of what's going on there is going to be the Chinese military actively shaping the information environment and advancing a narrative that projects capability and capacity and, and confidence. So, you know, stay tuned to this podcast in the Mitchell Institute, and we'll do our best to interpret what all these Chinese military headlines coming in 2024 mean in context. There are some things going on in China's defense industry that are frankly not awesome for Beijing. 
It all has to do with that corruption we were talking about earlier. I'd I mentioned on another show that the dismissal of the defense minister, Li Shangfu, that seemed to have something to do with the dismissal of the PLA rocket force commander and many of his senior staff. Well, the investigation seems to have extended to China's defense industry. Just a couple of weeks ago, several executives from three of China's leading defense corporations were also removed from their positions, and they're presumably under investigation for corruption. So there's a lot of churn going on. We're going to have to see what happens, but it seems like there may ultimately be an impact on the rules surrounding Chinese weapons procurement. Now, over time, whether that's a net gain or a net loss for the Chinese military, in the short term, I expect it's going to be pretty painful. I guess the other thing I'd point out on the technology front is China's space plane launched and arrived on orbit in the middle of December. And this is according to amateur space watchers, but China's space plane has apparently deployed a number of objects that are flying in formation with the space plane as we're recording this podcast. So it's probably testing and experimentation, seeing how their space plane can deploy and retrieve objects or maybe even weapons. But I couldn't help but notice that the U.S. Air Force space plane, the X-37B, launching just after Christmas. So now we have a Chinese space plane and the U.S. space plane on orbit. So I'm sure Charles will tell us this isn't how space planes work, but I'm thinking somebody needs to call fights on. Yeah, that sounds cool. <laughs> 24 in a theater near you. Maverick well, in orbit. Oh my gosh, I tell you. Well, you know, again, like we've said before, it's the enemy that chose to want to have space a warfighting domain, so they might just get it. Any advice you'd offer, you know, to U.S. and allied commanders in the Indo-Pacific region as a plan for 2024, Mike? You know, I think the commanders out in the Indo-Pacific have all the advice that they need on the tactical edge. I guess the only thing I'd have to offer in the way of advice is, you know, that from time to time, we all have to pull back on the stick and gain some altitude. You know, when we're talking about China and strategic competition, it's just like I was saying about the, you know, the ideas for innovations on one particular type of weapon system. We need to be able to see the whole board. Military competition with China in a strategic context is often about a whole lot more than military events and military engagements. The, the context really matters. Both we and the Indo-Pacific commanders need to pay close attention to the Chinese economy, U.S.-China economic competition, Taiwan politics, the Chinese Communist Party's politics, and the apparent rot of corruption within the Chinese military. We also need to pay attention to what's going on with politics in East Asia and South Asia and what those militaries might be doing. Because, you know, sometimes what the Chinese military does isn't all about just responding to the U.S. So there are a lot of feeds, a lot of signals that are figuring into how China thinks about military competition. And, you know, they're going to use their military to signal their intentions. And if we don't understand the context, there's every possibility we're either going to misinterpret or even worse, make a mistake. Yeah, I could not agree more. You know, Heather, I want to get you in here. You, you had mentioned a couple of really interesting things before. You know, the Air Force is pursuing a huge amount of modernization, uh, a lot of new programs, new organizational constructs, and new con-ops. What are the major programs and efforts you think we should be tracking? And are there any major developments you'd expect to unfold over the next few months? 
Well, it's like, you know, one of the things that I'm really looking uh, forward to is seeing uh, how OSD releases their defense industrial base strategy. This is the very first DIB strategy that they will be releasing. It was supposed to come out earlier in December. Probably we're looking mid to late January at the soonest. But we know that they're looking at four major pillars. The first is resilient supply chains. The second is workforce readiness. The third is flexible acquisitions. And the fourth is economic deterrence and security. So as I look at all of those, I go, well, you know, resilient supply chains, check. Absolutely. We've got to be able to reshore a lot of that capability and build up a lot of the small suppliers, the second, the third tier suppliers, as well as ensure that we provide them the necessary raw materials. So sort of reshoring a lot of that and then building that back up in many ways, ensuring that we have more than a single shop supplying a lot of those capabilities. The workforce readiness, that's more longer term. That's really about educating the necessary workforce to be able to do the kinds of skilled capabilities that they'll need to have. Flexible acquisitions, that's actually really where I've got the biggest question mark. What do they mean here? Flexible acquisition, do they mean having a surge capacity or do they mean the ability to swing from one uh, production capability to another? So from one widget, widget A to widget B. And that's going to be far more interesting to me. And I think this actually really speaks to what we saw come out of Ukraine, where we realized, hey, we have been coasting, you know, on munitions supply, and we don't have the ability to surge that kind of capability. So I think they actually mean surge capacity, because that kind of flexible moving from widget A to widget B is very problematic when you look at what the workforce is capable of doing, the kind of tooling, the production non-recurring tooling and hardware that you need to have within those production plants, that's far more difficult. You know, we all think about World War II and how we're on the arsenal of democracy. You have Ford plants suddenly making B-24s. That actually, if you look at the history, was far more difficult, far more problematic, and it took a long time. So I, I hardly think that that's, a, that's flexible. But when I think about the surge capacity, um, you know, I, there's a couple of principles that we need to keep in mind. And first is, how large of a force do we need, right? How many of these widgets do you need to have stockpiled? What's your rate of expenditure or loss? So how quickly are you going to expend them? Um, again, this gets back to munitions. And I think Sledge said earlier, you know, we've got about what? one week worth of munitions, or what's the kind of attrition rates that we expect to see? And then also, how long does it take to build these capabilities? So this is more along the nuclear subs or fighters or bombers. If it takes you a long time to build something, that means you need to have more within your standing force. Because again, you go to war with the force that you have, not the one that you wish you had. Which also gets me to a notion that our listeners have heard me talk before about, which is our strategic surprise time horizon. If it takes you five years, for example, because it's about five years to build a fighter from the time that you plan and and, and budget for it to the time that it rolls out of the factory and and is accepted by the government, if it takes you five years to build a widget, then you have, you know, that's your time horizon. If you know, for example, that you're going to need that widget in three years, you're already two years too late. So I think that's something that I'd like to, I'm really curious to see whether or not that's accounted for within the um, industrial-based strategy. But here's the bottom line. Any industrial-based strategy that does not take into account industry dynamics and interests is fundamentally just rhetoric. It's just pretty words. Industry cares about income. They need to be able to provide, you know, show profits to their investors. They care about their taxes or liability, and they need to ensure that um, they can smooth their production and their workforce over time. 
So if this in de defense industrial based strategy doesn't take in those dynamics that industry cares about and fundamentally shapes the decisions they make as businesses, then again, it's just rhetoric. A couple other things I'm watching, um, CCAs, what I'm looking there is what kind of progress are we seeing? Are we seeing first flights? Are we seeing live flies? And I think that's going to be really crucial to demonstrating these. this is real. So are we flying more than just one CCA? Are we seeing them in multiples, in swarms? Are they teaming with humans? So I guess the other piece of what I'm interested in, human teaming. So how do we integrate these into those operational concepts? And finally, affordability. So as we look at these CCAs, what is the price point that each one of these competitors is really looking at? Because we know that collaborative combat aircraft, not only do they need to be able to go the distance and do the job, but they need to be affordable because one of our intentions is really allowing those capabilities to shift the risk calculus of commanders and how they use them so that we can maximize really the human cognitive domain in the battle space. What I mean by that, we need to make sure that our pilots, our human pilots that are in the forward edge of the battle space, that they stay alive so they can make smart decisions that can disrupt uh, the bad guy's plan. And we're going to be able to use CCAs to do that, but they have to be affordable to make that happen. Where are we going to see this? Probably uh, we're going to see these flies out of Nullis. Project Venom, the Viper Experimentation Next Generation Operations Mode. So this is where you're taking F-16s, you're putting AI into them. I think we'll also see these CCAs fly down there. So that's really another thing that I'm, I'm watching hard. NGAD, don't think we're going to hear a whole lot about that, but flies, live flies, prototypes, I think will be interesting. We're going to see a lot of development in artificial intelligence and also the advanced battle management system and CJADC2. I'm very interested to see developments come out in that concept. I don't expect that we'll see a lot on the hardware side or the data link side, but I think we'll see more on the decision aid side. And finally, I'm not going to go over this this hard because you've already talked about it, but the reorg I'm really watching as well. And I think one of the biggest things that, that we're looking for there is how the reorg and the restructure of the MAGCOMs is going to change how we do requirements and acquisitions, right? So uh, right now we've got um, a lot of requirements being generated by the MAGCOMs, but there's a tension between what we need today and, you know, what Secretary Kendall wants for the future. If he consolidates requirements completely there at headquarters and is a basically able to um, marginalize uh, what we think of as today's current MAGCOMs, right, ACC, AMC, and so forth, I think we'll see an even greater shift more towards R&D and we'll see a decrease in procurement. And I think that there's a, a tension there, a healthy tension that exists today, which is really important. So I'll be curious and I'm, I'm really watching that reorg as we move forward. Awesome insights. And, you know, you've said it before, paralysis by analysis. So that's what the R&D, your R&D discussion brings to the front of my mind. And I just wanted to clarify for our listeners uh, that might not be really astute to the procurement process. When you said five years to build an airplane, that's an airplane that's been already approved to be bought within the inventory, not like a clean sheet design. So you're talking, if you want a new F-35 and you decide you want to buy that number today, it's not coming off the line for five years, right? Yeah, exactly. So like, this is a hot production line. We're not talking NGAT. I mean, like in today's acquisition, we're seeing, you know, from imagining the new capability with, with high technology readiness levels to the time you see that it go IOC, so initial operating capability, we're not even talking numbers that matter. We're just talking like you're starting your very first unit. That's 15 to 20 years in today's environment. So when, when I say five years for that strategic surprise time horizon, that's a, like you said, that's a, that's a jet that's already in a hot production line. 
Yeah, craziness. Well, and you also did mention history. I know, I know you've studied a ton of military history in your career, uh, and the Air Force has certainly pursued you know great modernization and aggressive uh, reforms. But any lessons you'd like to pass on to to leaders? You know, how do they manage risk? You know, that are when they're so aggressive, but it's not reckless in terms of leaning too far forward and that type of balance. Slick, you know, I've already hit a lot of those points today, whether or not that's the balance between R&D and procurement, whether or not that's looking at your strategic surprise time horizon, which, by the way, is different for every capability. But I'd like to point out that when we go through, you know, the previous eras of recapitalization, like Korea and Vietnam or the 1970s, where we developed the jets and the capabilities we bought in the 1980s during the Reagan era defense buildup, we had the ability to rest on previous force structure. So coming, you know, as we're developing and fielding the first new jets, we still had a huge force structure coming out of World War II. For Reagan, you know, building and, and, and buying those jets, the F-16s, F-15s, A-10s, and, and so forth, we still had a huge amount of force structure that we were able to coast on. And that is not true today. So as we look at the, the modernization requirements for today were really, I would say, in 1937, we're, we're the smallest, we're the oldest, we're the least ready. And oh, by the way, our industrial capacity is not sufficient to surge to the capability that we need, which is why I say, hey, we're in 1937 today. So it's really, again, about understanding where we are and that we can no longer afford to take risk on the force structure that we have today. We've got to build up today while also planning for the future. Thanks, Heather. And that's a great segue for what I wanted to ask Doug about. And that's about the Air Force that exists today. So what should we be watching in 2024? And Doug, let's start with hardware. Yeah, no, I want to pick up on on what Heather was saying. You know, for too long, the Air Force has been trying to pay its modernization bills by cannibalizing itself through something called divest to invest. And that basically means get rid of the old hardware to free up enough cash to buy some new. The problem is, as anybody knows, that it's gotten rid of a used car. You can't sell that used car and take that cash and expect to get something off a dealer's lot brand new. It doesn't work that way. So it's a death spiral that you're in. And we've played that for so many years in a row that we are now at a zone where we just literally are are reaching bottom barrel on inventory. So bomber inventory is, you know, very, very low, you know, just over a hundred airframes, really, when you look at what's available. That's insane when you look at what the demands are around the world. The fifth gen inventory is, you know, really 185 F-22s and you take out what's in training and testing and all that. It's only about a hundred available for combat. You look at, you know, that we're gonna employ those kind of a third at a time. Jets that are ginning up, ready to go on a mission, jets that are over target, jets that are coming back. You know, that's about 30 available in the globe at a given time. That's insane. So we've got to really arrest this temptation to raid the the cupboard today, trying to pay for tomorrow. We're just way too high on low capacity, high demand mission areas. And I think if we try to push that any further, we're also going to see tremendous retention issues because we're just burning out the people. You look at, you know, what's going on in the pilot community, maintenance community, other areas like air battle managers and all that. It's a really, really big problem. And so to get yourself out of it, though, you have to ensure that the aircraft that are currently building, you know, and lines today and all that those programs are healthy. And that's why 2024 has got to be a make or break year for F-35 TR-3 block form modernization. I mean, we need those jets yesterday in high numbers. And so it's got to get straightened out. We got to start turning that line on again because uh, we cannot gap the production um, in terms of what's being accepted today. 
And, you know, same holds through for B-21. Those jets have got to deliver fast in big numbers. T-7, you know, that's backfilling T-38s that were largely bought during Vietnam. Students have been trying to rip those jets apart with hard landings and less than finessed flying skills since Vietnam. Think about that. Physics wins at a certain point in time, and those jets have got to be reset. E-7, that thing has got to come online fast. We've got the J-STARS, Sunset 2023, the AWACS is getting cut aggressively. You've got to sustain the crews. You've got to high-demand mission area. It's a really big problem. And then you also got to maintain the, the inventory that you have and they're going to retain. It's types like the MQ-9, you know, later F-16s, B-52, there are a lot more there. But you got to modernize what, what you're going to keep on board. And then, of course, there's a tri- triad. I mean, GBSD with the Sentinel program at its heart, that's a must-win program. And we need to do whatever it takes to keep that online. It's a bedrock of deterrence. And if you think the program is expensive, try living without it. I mean, deterrence is a best investment, bar none. Ask somebody in Ukraine what they think about that. Well, Doug, what about personnel? It's a huge issue, and it gets too little attention. So right now, at the top of the line, we're carrying a fighter pilot shortfall of about 2,000 folks, and we've been doing that for multiple years. That is a disaster. Think about that. That's during peacetime. What happens when you get to a conflict and you lack the ability to backfill your losses. That's insane. And like Heather was saying, the strategic window of surprise, well, guess what? It takes five years to buy an aircraft. It takes about the same to generate a combat qualified pilot that you actually trust in a trying situation. We have got to get our heads around that. And plus, like I said earlier, we're stressing the current community too much. We're going to shove them out the door because we're making their lives miserable. And guess what? There's a huge pilot shortfall around the world. These folks can get jobs instantly anywhere, making a lot more money with better quality of life. So we've really got to watch that carefully and look at how do we create elasticity and more capacity in the pipeline. Then I think I'd also look at the air battle managers. Now, that's something where GMTI from space is still a concept in many ways. E7 is years off. We've got to steward these people very, very carefully. They are fundamentally tied to their iron. They cannot do their jobs unless they're allowed training reps, operational employment, and all of that. You take that away, and and you have no mission for these folks. They're going to walk. And they are hugely, hugely skilled folks. It takes years to train them. I think they're going to be even more important in a JADC2 world. And so we got to figure out a way to bridge them, keep them on board. And that means being very transparent with them about where is their mission, what's their future looking like, and and really taking care of them. And, you know, I'd point to the electronic warfare community. We raided that in the 90s. We absolutely killed it. And yet it's the heart of everything now. And so that's another community that we need to take care of. We can't repeat what we did there with the air battle managers. We got to you know, also look at growing what is now known as the electromagnetic spectrum operations community today. I mean, the 350th down in Florida, they're doing an awesome job. How do you grow more of those people? It's a huge personnel imperative right now. Maintenance, it's another concern. Old small air force, we're beating these aircraft hard. There's a maintenance shortfall around the world. These guys can walk anytime they want and get a job easily. So how do we season, grow, protect that community, make them feel valued? And then the last one I'm going to hit here is the operational experience at headquarters and at MAGCOMS. It is hugely important. You know, people talk about, well, you know, 2,000 fighter pilot shortfall, but we're sustaining that. We're not gapping cockpits. They're gapping it by gapping the headquarters billets. So we're sustaining programs like F-35. We're looking at NGAD or CCA. Who is actually in charge with operational experience informing smart decision making? Billions of dollars is on the line. 
the ability to really have a future. Do we really want somebody who is well-intentioned but has no actual experience in charge of that program? It's insane. We got to wake up and really fight for those billets, and that means growing some of those those zones. So I can go on, but it's a start of what we got to watch with people. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Doug. I mean, we can't put stop this personnel readiness issue any longer. And I think you did a great job encapsulating what's going on out there in the field. But what about organization and conops topics? I don't really hit, you know, Secretary Kendall's reorg, but it's all about maintaining that balance between fighting tonight, which is very, very dangerous, China, you know, Russia going on, Iran, North Korea non-state actors continue to be a problem. We cannot take too much risk here, but also preparing for tomorrow. You need to be in, in both zones. I would just argue we have to be very careful that we do not kid ourselves, that we're somehow going to reorg ourselves out of chronic, persistent problems. You're not going to reorg yourself out of not having enough cash, out of personnel shortfalls, out of acquisition challenges that need to be sorted out. So there might be some things that you can change you know, within the, within how you build the enterprise. But fundamentally, you have to still say, I need more money or I need more capacity. If we kid ourselves out of that and if we are not vocal with Congress and other stakeholders, guess what? Those problems aren't going to get solved. You're just rearranging deck chairs, burning time and cash, and you're not solving the real chronic problems that are driving a lot of this. So I, I think it, we got to really keep the flag up on that. And then I just add in a similar vein, when it comes to new concepts in play, there are a lot of good ideas, you know, agile combat employment. If we look at things that are going on with CCAs, all of that, that's great. However, are they hollow ideas right now? Do you have enough equipment, people, you know, supporting elements like logistics, necessary base defense capabilities? Do you have all that stuff to make it work? Or is it a hollow idea? And I think right now we're way too much on the ladder. And so good ideas are only as good as you can staff them and equip them. And we got to be way more vocal about that. And at the end of the day, people should be very, very okay with with championing for those solutions because it's all about defending the lieutenant and captain who's going to have to put their life on the line in the future when they're under fire. And we've got to defend them today by articulating what those requirements are and being very vocal about them. And so I think it's a moral imperative. It's that, it's that simple. Yeah, thanks so much, Doug. I, you know, we're getting, as we always do, a little short on time. I want to see if there's any save rounds. And let's get started with Mike. Yeah, Slick, I'm going to circle back to that letter that Representative Gallagher sent to the Deputy Secretary of Defense I was talking about earlier. So here, here's how that letter opens. In December 1940, while we were still at peace, President Franklin D. Roosevelt famously called on the United States to be the great arsenal of democracy. He said it was the purpose of the nation to build with all possible speed, every machine, every arsenal, every factory that we need to manufacture our defense material. President Roosevelt's call did more than provide a lifeline to our allies who were already in battle. It helped arm our own military in advance of and through years of heavy conflict and ultimately win the war. So I think we've got an ally and Representative Gallagher, if nobody else, and he does sit on the on the on the House Armed Services Committee. But, you know, this is exactly what Heather was saying, right? It's 1937 all over again. History doesn't repeat itself, but it sure as heck does rhyme. <laughs> Oh, man, I'm going to write that one down, Mike. All right. Anybody else have uh, anything to hop in? Yeah, if I could, Slick, uh, I just wanted to foot stomp a point that Heather made a couple of times about the tension between research and development and procurement. At some point, you've got to buy stuff. And we're at that point. 
Yeah, and just to, to pile in on that sledge, everyone knows that we've got a problem getting R&D into production, right? It's the well-known valley of death. So you have to begin to ask yourself, how much of the money are we putting into R&D that is actually throwing, I mean, might as well just be burning that cash because it's never, never going to see that go into production, which then again gets back to the defense industrial base strategy is you've got to buy. If you want a defense industrial base, you have to buy. Yeah, I could not agree more. Well, everyone, I just want to say thank you so much for your time today. You know, 2024 is going to be an interesting year uh, as we've laid out. So Charles, Mike, Heather, Doug, Sledge and Laser, it's been awesome catching up. Looking forward to working with you all this year. And here we go. We're off to the races. Yeah, thanks, Slick. Happy New Year, everyone. Great to be here. Hey, it was a great, great joining everybody again. Looking forward to future podcasts. Thanks, Slick. Great conversations, Lex. Thanks so much. As always, man, a pleasure. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.